Your girlfriend, you take care of her. Okay, welcome to Movie Night Extravaganza, episode 13, uh, The Superstructure of Evil Dead, which is the first time I think we've given a, a show uh, that we've done a, a title and not just, um, you know, just generically thrown up episode whatever than the movie title. But um, we are joined, of course, by uh, Maximilian Ciejo and uh, Natalie Smith, who hosts uh, Superstructure, hence the title, um, a left MMT podcast, and uh, it's put out by... Um, by Money on the Left, History Theory Practice, an open source peer review journal uh, that Max helps edit. So how's it going? Doing pretty good. Um, I think Natty's muted, which is how it should be. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> Whatever you say. <laughs> I was gonna. I was already gonna ask Natty. Um, is that what the '80s were like? Evil Dead. You, know, you would know. Yeah. Uh, 1981. That's like slightly before my time, but I think I was like in the womb somewhere, but I was like yeah. not doing too much in 1981. So it's hard to say precisely. But uh... you never chopped anyone up with a chainsaw <laughs> or. <laughs> I mean, okay, well, I, I wouldn't go too far. <laughs> Grow, growing up in Atlanta, well, we did that like every week in the early 80s. It was, uh, oh, yeah. you know, that's just how, how we had the barbecues. Yeah. What, what well, I mean, you, you know, when, when people get possessed, you know, they're, they're open season. And, you know, 
Uh, there's that there's that one line where she's uh where she's like, "Thank you for getting me off of all those hot coals." Right before uh, right before she grabs the guy. <laughs> um, I don't know. Kind of a ridiculous movie. Uh, I think I think made made in fun. It's it's interesting to have done so much Alex Cox uh, stuff recently. And then Who is Alex? I, you're like super genre. So I like, I'm. you were like, let's do, you're like, what movie do you guys want to do? Like, I'm doing a lot of Alex Cox. I'm like, I don't know who that is. And well, he did, I, uh, he, he's like a, he's like a punk director. He did Sid and Nancy, which we did the other day um, on Tuesday. And he did Walker. He did, uh, he's kind of a, a leftist. One of the few, I would say like genuinely leftist filmmakers to the point Repo where he got man. blacklisted. Yeah. Repo what, man. What, what kind of, what kind of leftism? Um, uh, a very confused Jacobin, like Jacobin style leftism, I'd say, like not really as defined as it could be. Um, but I don't know. He thought he was an anarchist, but I think he kind of rethought that because I don't think he quite knew what an anarchist actually was. And uh, <laughs> throughout the eighties, I think more of a more of like a, a democratic socialist, social democrat, like that style of, of leftism. Okay, cool. But, he should uh, run punk, current affairs. What, what's what's uh, I'm sorry to just pick your brain, but uh, so what's what's a punk? This is the problem. If you have podcasters on your podcast, they might just start podcasting. <laughs> what do you mean? Like what's a punk? What's a punk movie? <laughs> I don't, that that uh, yeah. laughter sounds like you're possessed. I, I'm wondering if we should be chopping that's, you up. That's that's the secret. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go there precisely. Um. <laughs> um yeah, that's I, I enjoy laughing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> sort of our signature thing is not so did Ash's girlfriend. So you know. Yeah. Well. <laughs> I mean, it's better than a it's better than a Sav's laugh on Come Town. That's kind of the. I have not listened to that show. We're oh. pure. Sorry. Um. <laughs> I'm a good girl. Oh my god. <laughs> I tried to. I tried to. I tried to get Stav to come on to when I was working on give them an argument. I tried to get him to come on and do a movie podcast, and he like. Kind of shot me down. I thought that would be hilarious, though, to get that guy on a movie podcast. Um. So yeah. So I, I guess, uh, like, what a punk era film would be is, um, I mean, Repo Man is is a good example of kind of Alex Cox's best known film. But he was kind of working during the, uh, he so he made Repo Man, and he was like everybody's favorite um director for a little bit, like the new hot director, and um, and then he turned around, he made Sid and Nancy, which is kind of his like mainstream uh kind of bullshit. Uh, punk film and then he took that money and he funneled it into making a movie in Nicaragua um, called Walker that he pretty much worked with the Sandinistas um, and gave them all the profits from the movie nice. and uh, within within three years of his career starting he was basically blacklisted <laughs> in a way that I don't think I don't think people in the 80s really got blacklisted like that so he was like one of the yeah <laughs> No, and I think I think too, if you want to like uh, you know identify other punk filmmakers, uh, Jim Jarmusch might be a, a good one to to look at. Uh, and um, oh shoot, I just blanked on the other person I was thinking of. But but uh, you know, uh, but but Alex Cox was specifically from England, so so it's a very okay. English punk. So he could, where, he where could Jim Jarmusch is out of New York. So there's it a the new. It could be the new Nathan Robinson. <laughs> I don't even what what category is he in? I don't even know what I'm like. It's like some chaos theory. I don't know what's happening. Hundred percent with that. Cat, cat, like pre whatever set of scandals. Just like there's like a several. I don't even know. I'm not sure. I care, but um. 
I well, feel I mean, like I don't know. Alex caught like directing movies, like those things you described about 80s punk sounds more interesting to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. He so he's he's been an indie director since, but anyway, on the on the other side, I guess, of the of the movie spectrum is Sam Raimi that uh directed okay. Evil Dead because you know, okay. I, I think that you know, I remember as a kid, he was the one that directed Spider-Man. I remember being really into the <laughs> Spider-Man movies, like the, the Tobey Maguire ones. And so I, I don't think you could like, you know, I don't think you could make a controversial movie the way that um, someone like Alex Cox did and be considered for mm. like that kind of that kind of property. So that's my that's my segue, I guess, into talking about Evil Dead. Um, so I, I wanted to start with. Uh, Sam Raimi kind of describing the process of, of making it. I thought this was interesting because, you know, I mean, I think I, I, I wanted to be a filmmaker. I mean, I still do. Um, so I, I like hearing stories about people that kind of uh, did it a different way, I think, than um, a lot of a lot of filmmakers are doing or any filmmakers are doing at the time. So I think this is a really interesting um, starting point. Sam, what were the origins of your... <clears throat> Sam, what were the origins of your low-budget horror movie, Evil Dead? What do you mean by low-budget? <laughs> Sam, could you describe Evil Dead? Yes, it is a rock'em sock'em roller coaster ride of uh, screaming horror. When you set out to make the film, at what point did you say anything goes? Um, well, we never really said that. We uh, wrote wrote the screenplay. And then uh, it was uh, it was pretty intense. A lot of things in the screenplay I mean, were very intense, and uh, we just went about and filmed them, really. So that it was your intention from the beginning to make a brutal, savage horror <laughs> film. Uh, yes. No, not to make a brutal, savage horror film. We wanted to make Robert Tapper, the producer, and myself, and Bruce Campbell wanted to make a film that would definitely uh, entertain the horror crowd because we had sat in on a lot of uh, drive-in movies and a lot of horror theaters in Detroit during shows. And sometimes, most of the time, we would watch films and they didn't deliver enough. That's what we felt. So we wanted to make one that would really uh, knock them with a punch. I'm going to ask you to give a, a brief <clears throat> synopsis of the story. Okay. The film is about. Evil Dead is a film about five college students that go up to this small cabin in the mountains of Tennessee. And there they find an ancient book and a tape recording of a man, both left there by this man, a professor, who had been, who had gone to this cabin to study these artifacts on this dig that he had been on in what is what would have been ancient Samaria. And the tape recording that they find is a, a journal on exactly uh, what this book is. And in fact, it's a, the Book of the Dead, a book of do's and don'ts dealing with the deceased. It's got burial, burial passages of the Sumerians and ancient incantations for resurrecting the dead. And he warns on this tape not to, that these things shouldn't be tampered with, in his quest for knowledge, he goes ahead anyways, and he unleashes these evil forces. And in fact, they're still there as these children are one by one terrorized by it. Uh, it comes from the woods, this dark and brooding entity, and surrounds the cabin that they're in. And 
one by one it possesses them and their eyes go white and they're jerked about like marionettes and they're forced against one another and uh it's a love story uh no it's not a love story but it's a uh, it's a lot of fun i don't want to give away the shock ending but we we tried to make it as scary and as fun as possible a, a lot of horror films are criticized for their assault on women their have sex and die motifs Evil Dead is not like that. In Evil Dead, everyone gets it. Right. That's true. Everyone does get it. In fact, in Evil Dead, we tried to make a, <clears throat> a pro, uh, tried to elevate the role of women in films so that they wouldn't totally be stereotyped as the, as the, the victims. And <laughs> I look at it as a blow for women's liberation in horror in the sense that they became the monsters in this picture yeah. and they terrorized the men. Right. <laughs> yeah, so that was good. Right. I agree with the question on this. Um, how, how successful do you think the uh, feminist messaging of everybody gets it is? Um, <laughs> Let, that, was, that, was, that was quite an interview hot take. <laughs> I guess the, the backstory watching the whole thing is that he's getting interviewed by like his friends. So he's acting weird to like okay. crack. Yeah, because I thought that was really fucking weird how he was acting. And I like had to go back and like look at it. He again. seems like whacked out of his mind, but yeah. it's interesting. It's an interesting interview. I mean, uh, I, I I don't know all the backstory on this guy. You were telling me the uh, like the the backstory the, of like him and the director, and like they had some comic routine with magic tricks and beating each other up or something. Yeah, so he was he was high school best friends with uh, Bruce Campbell, who's the guy that stars okay. in the movie. And I guess Sam Raimi um, and him like did the morning announcements, and then like had like a magician, like a, a nerdy magician act where they run around and he realized, um, I guess that people really liked it when like, you know, bad things and like a violence would happen to Bruce Campbell, I guess. So okay. in this movie, he's like covering his high school best friend and up with so much blood and like, like throw up and like, so he's basically just fucking with, uh, fucking Throwing with the bookcases. Like, yeah. So as one, as one does. Yeah. I mean, how many bookcases did he have to run into in this movie? It was like a dozen. <laughs> 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 what does that mean? What is what does the bookcase mean? Like well, words, you words. I did, but I can't remember all the details. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that's okay. not my, it's not my strength. I, I have the trilogy voice. like memorized. Okay, <laughs> so so like you know, I've seen this many many times. Um, okay, I, I remember like uh, back in college, um, we we were watching it and we realized that um, uh, Ash goes to the same character arc that uh, Luke Skywalker does in the Star Wars trilogy. That, that the first one, he's a wimp and kind of annoying. Uh, and the second one, he gets his hand chopped off. His, I think it's the same hand too. And no, then absolutely. in the third one, he's a badass. So, you know, it's it's the same arc. It's the same the same movie, really, if you think about okay. it. And, and do and they Bruce all Campbell. have this feminist, like what what is your read of like, what what do you think? Do you think it's a feminist horror film? Not this one. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I would say uh, even that too. You know, you might make that argument because they really okay. do have a uh, much better like. Um, she, she's not like a romantic interest at all. They're just two people in a situation because because basically what they did is um, they got rid of the the uh, the friends and it was just Ash and his girlfriend. So the first um, because they couldn't get the rights for the movie, 
uh, to, to show like uh, previously an Evil Dead kind of thing. They actually remade the movie in part two. So so the first um, 20, 30 minutes of it is a remake of, of this movie, but just with Ash and his girlfriend. And then um, it, it uh, goes right up to where this movie ends, continues from that moment on, and then brings in a bunch of new characters. And um, uh, it's the daughter of the uh, person who, who, who was uh, translating the Necronomicon. Um, who shows up and um, she is a much better character than any of the, the women in this film and any of the uh, women in the uh, next one, um, okay. which only was one, if I remember correctly. Well, no, if you two, if you count uh, uh, the, the demon possessed women that just show, show up randomly, but um, uh, the, the other one is, is purposely sexist, but li like it's done okay. as a joke. Um, Absolutely. Because the third one is a complete just like stupid movie it, it, it is it is right. like they, what they did is they got a bunch of shakespearean <laughs> actors to be I in at playing like these medieval characters because he's trapped in medieval europe and so they're, they're like all these welch like just playing it like like a like a theatrical shakespearean actor would you know um willis thou speaketh the words that uh, raise the nectar and avocado from its rest. He's like, ah, what are the words? That was pretty good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I told you, I got these memory. I got it on a lock, man. <laughs> I excuse, I excuse in advance any and all random possessions of laughter that I go through. Um, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, I won't get murdered in a feminist way. <laughs> well, I told Andy not to read. I told Andy not to read me the book of the dead before the podcast started. Because, yeah, uh, you know, they come out. They, you know, they they really just possess this podcast. And I guess you know. Maybe they're right. Well, our our, our co-host William, who, who couldn't make it tonight, but he like is like the biggest, I feel like, horror like nerd fan of, of ours. And he was like telling you guys, he's like, it's a straddles the genre of possessed and slasher. And I just felt like a total newbie. I was like, that sounds relevant, but I don't know what that means. Well, I mean, yeah, well, well, I, mean I think it, it definitely does because it's, you know, it's a take on those slasher movies that they made throughout the 70s. Um, where, you know, everybody would go to a cabin. It would be like a bunch of horny ass, uh, like horny ass 20 year olds going to a cabin to fuck. And then all of a sudden, you know, a slap, like the slasher character would come out of the shadows to punish them in a, in like a morally puritanical way for deciding to fuck in the woods. I mean, that's kind of the entire genre. So yeah. I think this, I think, so it straddles the line between that and, you know, the, the numerous. Sex, uh, sex and forests were, were against it. I mean, I you know I'm pro forest personally because I, 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 don't, I, but, I don't. but it's interesting people have like the, it's interesting that it centers on a forest right like yeah. not, it's not like people just are obsessed with forests it's yeah well it was just, kind of a, a, a period where where people were like uh, thinking about like uh like nature is scare itself is scary because everybody was living in the suburbs or the cities or whatever and, and they are moving away from it so so um, there's this weird trend in the 80s where nature was scary and that was part of the uh, the fear. Um, uh, it's also liberatory in a weird sense because you know in a lot of those movies uh nature is kind of taking back what's theirs i think and nature is taking it out on people who have dared to kind of uh literally just destroy and and, and you know brutalize it nature what and that, women. what does that mean um does th that sounds like when uh like yeah like don't they say like some natural disasters how like some aids victims deserve it? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm just saying. Like, I'm just saying. I noticed the theme in a lot of movies um, from right. that time and from other times is that you know we've pushed too far into nature, and nature is somehow 
striking back at us in like a, a literal so, sense. What, so what is nature? <laughs> I think before before Natty insists on um, speak, the enlightenment <laughs> philosophical <laughs> definitions, um, I I think to first start with the positive. I think what I find compelling about this film is um, it's just kind of campy and fun in a way that I think Sam Raimi's interview sort of captures and in a sort of weird and awkward way that um, I can appreciate. I Last night I went and saw The Green Knight and I, this was just such a uh, stark contrast to a sort of, I don't know, even though nature plays a big role in, in these films, uh, there, there's something very 80s and periodized about this that I think can be campy verging on punk that, that I enjoy, obviously. We discussed the uh, lack of feminist ideals, but I, I think to he, me, he thinks. It's, I mean, he he believes that. It oh, was I'm Max sure. Yeah. Or at least it's fine. Max is coming out as a Kantian. So. No, I'm well, never coming out as a Kantian. Mostly as other it's, things. Um, it's feminist in the same way that that one guy that you know was in your high school or something that posts, "Oh, like I'm I'm a feminist. I'll beat the fuck out of a guy or a girl." Like. It's feminist exactly. the way that that is feminist. It's it, it, it's feminist when you just say that um, inequality doesn't exist. Um, I don't see no, I don't see gender see, inequality. See, um, he's, saying that, he's saying though that he does. I just gender. kill everybody. I'm yeah, just, he's saying that he does pan, see gender pan, inequality. Pan, pan homicidal. His, well, his, way I of, think... his way of dealing with with uh, with gender inequality is to bring men down to the level of women and brutalize them. Well, right, and I think what's so I think what's interesting about this is in the eighties, obviously, like to think to think like in the, the, where this film sits in the history of American politics is of course like the onset of the Reagan revolution. Right. And, and there's a lot of love, places we can go with this. Reagan. Yeah. Um, and as, <laughs> and as <laughs> he's a good friend of show, we, uh, we established that that's the only friend of the, the show. Only, uh, that's the only ghost I can contact is Reagan. Ronnie. Um, <laughs> and, but the, so there's something very, of course, um, there's this sort of onset of a, you know, what we could call a, a, a sort of Reagan-esque period of deregulation of market fundamentalism. Obviously, all of these things are lingering. But to me, I think what's really interesting about this is that, you know, staging this quest into nature to, uh, to get outside of the structures and then having the structures of morality or we could say the market assert themselves in the form of uh, brutal homicide and, and, and slasher violence is something that I think obviously as you know, as you both know is really goes with this genre, but also I think says something about uh, the moment that I, that I do think is interesting, right? I mean, the, 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 the bridge being a sort of fulcrum of, of, or, or as an allegory for, trying to to cut things off but you know the, the failure of infrastructure you know there's all these linkages that I think are interesting to that we could talk about but ultimately for me I think um this sort of inevitability of you sort of entering a sort of forbidden state um is a sort of reactive kind of mode and and I think it's interesting how Sam Raimi gives voice to that reactive mode in a complicated way even you know it's fun but there's obviously things we can we can well, yeah. critique the the whole film's actually a reactive film because uh his his previous film got panned by uh the Detroit press 
So he wanted to make a movie that made them physically ill. And that's are why they, he did all this. Are they like a big player in the... Well, in his, no. in his, in his life, I think I think they're a big player in his life as a, like a twenty-year-old, as a twenty-year-old, yeah. like okay. you know, film student. Or yeah, you know. he, he was just angry about it, and this was I uh, you I know. I saw the Michigan State sweatshirt. Is he from Michigan? Yes, Detroit. Yeah. There's. Yeah. I, I I will admit I don't know like the entire background of all of the. I mean, I've sent Forrest pictures of me and Bruce Campbell, so. You know, I am that kind of nerd. I've seen men with screaming brain on the big I, screen. I, I have to learn. That's why I have to learn. And, yeah, that's why, no. and that's why right now we need to plug Bruce Campbell's, uh, you know, chicken noodle soup. Um, he actually gave us money his books are really good. Money to do this podcast, and uh, you know, we thank what's, him. What's his niche? Is this is he like the Paul Newman of? He's the Paul Newman of horror of horror cinema. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Did you ever see his old Spice commercials? While we're plugging things, I have to make sure we plug. Um, we have to. I have to make sure that we plug Ben Burgess's new book, which we at Superstructure really love. Because um, I know, I know you all work with him, so we just wanted to make sure we get that on the record. So, um, but anyway, we can move on now. Um, we we will only praise. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the episode that got Andy fired. <laughs> Right, but, I, but, but mostly no. because of, this gets you fired. That's not my fault. <laughs> Canceling Andy while the world burns. Um, You're gonna get um, us fired. You have people like uh, you have people on who I think. Oh, like oh shit! I hope people are not mad because we're on a show with people on like Catherine Liu. Yeah, this is. I I do like though that this episode generated from. Uh, you know, my my plugging the Catherine Liu conversation, which, by the way, second conversation I've had this year that um, seemed controversial, I think, before it happened. And then everybody watched it and there wasn't she uh, she mentioned the PMC once, I think, in that entire conversation. Make sure you tell her that that's us. We're that. So that don't, you know, just go back and tell her that. Um, Max, well, I'm moving. Max, I'm moving. Max, up. Is, I'm not, moving. Max this, is not really just just Princess Minnie Cooper. In in thirteen episodes, I've gone from you know the, the the bottom of everything, and I'm moving up through the PMC uh, episode by episode. No, but I appreciate yeah. you guys. I appreciate you guys. I but I have to put in my superstructure like bitch line, you know. All right. Well, that's that's branding for you. It's these things. It's uh, not branding. It's not branding. It's about things that are that matter. And and branding yeah. matters. Yeah. <laughs> as, as Sam Raimi will tell you, getting us back into the evil dead part of the conversation. Sure, um, so I think that, I think the punk part of it is the fact that they kind of did it as a DIY venture. And uh, yeah. I, you know, I have a, I have a clip of him talking about this in that same interview where he talks about um, crowdfunding, which is something that I don't think was really happening. Um, I mean, you know, I, starting in the nineties, it definitely was starting in the nineties kind of independent cinema blew up in a way that I don't think it really had to that point, but you know, you have to have funding of some kind. And um, I think it's they, so they kind of crowdfunded this by going door to door in Detroit, which sounds like not an optimal way to crowdfund a movie. But you know what? To each their own. That's um, interesting history, though. That's fascinating. Yeah. So uh, this is this is him talking about that part of it. Literally, literally going around knocking on people's doors and being like, oh. hey, I'd like to. Have you ever heard of Jesus Christ? Oh, by the way, I want to make a movie. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> For us in Detroit, uh, 
it was certainly possible. I don't know, I can't say easier because it's the only place I've done it, but it was possible for us to raise money out of the city. And possibly it is an advantage to live there because when we went to people knocking on doors and showing them a, a short version of the film we intended to make for money, they were still struck by the novelty of the thing, not having lived in a film production town. So it could have been a great advantage, the fact that we were asking for this money in a place that they don't make films. We were able to get it, certainly. So I think that living in Detroit had a lot to do with it because of it, because of that, and therefore and how. But uh, also, the unions in Detroit aren't quite as, uh, as far as I know, I've only made it one non-union picture, but they aren't as intense or powerful, and they won't uh, slash your tires or they won't uh, do any horrible things or make you act or have men on your sets because it's just not that strongly organized. So as an independent, it's easier to sneak through their net to make a picture. To raise the financing for the film, you made a Super 8 pilot for the picture. Right. Before we made Evil Dead, we made a Super 8 pilot called Evil, called... Take it from the top. Okay. Before we made Evil Dead. <clears throat> Before we made Evil Dead, we made a Super 8 pilot of the film we intended to make. And that was called Within the Woods. And what I did was took the screenplay for Evil Dead, took a number of the elements from it, and wrote a very short story. We filmed it, and uh, it ran about 30 minutes. And it could sh we used it to show the investors exactly what kind of film they'd be buying into, because we had no track record. And they needed some sort of tangible proof that we could, in fact, make a movie of professional quality. So it's a very of its neoliberal era then. Mm -hmm. Crowdfunding. And it's interesting how that how that plays into the reactive thing I, I that you guys were talking about. I feel like I my ADHD made us lose that thread, but it's interesting the what you're saying, Max, about like the the sense of what you are thinking about when you're looking for funding in that early neoliberalism and and also the very in, uh, the very prescient how do i get around unions um <laughs> always an important question right i mean it's just it's really really crucial but i i do think right that that speaks to in a way this sort of larger systematic structure of the era right like that that to produce something like this the structural moment in which um reagan comes into be is one in which there is a sort of constrained finite vision for production in general, and in this case, aesthetic production, right? There's not an avenue for someone like Sam Raimi to make something aside from having to go door to door, right? And this is a, this is a sim like it's a symptom of a broader political problem, I think. And, and certainly when we're thinking about arts funding, but also it then enmeshes the film on the back end in these sorts of, reactive or um, contextually constrained context. And I, and I think that's an interesting way of understanding this film and then, you know, maybe entering into some of the thematic stuffs around the way, you know, pay, payback as it were is, uh, is delivered. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think, I think that it, there is an interesting um, moment in time where the bottom kind of falls out on arts funding. Um, during the early neoliberal era, because we're kind of leaving this Cold War 
uh, state where a lot of academics were honestly just and, and creatives and you know that like the entire industry of people really creating things in the United States, media content, films are, are funded. I mean, both by the studio system, which obviously is very enmeshed with the with the state, but also by the CIA and and the State Department itself. That's really um, giving the, like a lot of funding to more abstract creators to kind of create like our version of, of Soviet realism in the sense of like, uh, you know, just funding number one, anti-communist propaganda, but number I've, two, just- I'm always saying how like Soviet dead is like Detroit Soviet realism. I mean, sorry, <laughs> evil dead, evil evil dead, Detroit Soviet realism. Sorry, that, that would be- Soviet dead, that's a low blow. <laughs> so Soviets are alive in our hearts. <laughs> Join us. Come Join on, it's, us. Hard. it's hard out here. <laughs> no, but there's this moment where the bottom kind of falls out where arts become less important, I think, in this era because suddenly art isn't really necessary to a war effort. Art isn't necessarily um, uh, irrelevant, I guess, to kind of these covert operations. Like, there's a lot of stuff going on where someone like Sam Raimi would just fall through the cracks and not and necessarily have. Yeah. You also had um, people like. Uh, Strom Thurmond and um, oh, I'm blanking on the guy's name. Another now. another friend of show, Strom Thurmond. Um, <laughs> uh, and and uh, uh, I, th I think I, Catherine I actually would love Strom, but anyway, that's fine. Um, <laughs> but, but anyways, uh, only was, uh, when she's in her trucker persona. Uh, but there's a second Republican that that was actually railing against um, uh, the NEA for for um, uh, promoting like homosexual arts and, and uh, uh, Piss Christ got a grant. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that piece. Um, uh, and, sound, and, is it sound, is it like what it sounds like? Yeah, basically, yeah, it's a, it's a little <laughs> plastic uh, uh, crucifix in a jar full of pee. Okay. Uh, photographed. It's it's an absolute gorgeous piece. Uh, and it's talking about Here's like the, uh, the whole idea of it is like the commercialization of, of uh, religion. And, and uh, okay. you know, um, uh, Jesse Helms, that's the dude's name. Yeah. Jesse Helms was like good, a raging... good, uh, good ally of, of Ronnie. Also friend of the show as well. <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> he's, he's the ghost that haunts the haunts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, Jesse Helms like was, was spent a lot of his career um, not just, you know, singing Dixie to, uh, you know, the only black people in, in the Senate, but uh, also, uh, which is true, he he would like go into an elevator with him and just start whistling Dixie. Jesus just, Christ! Yeah, there, there's an author um, I want to shout she's out. Like, I'm, um, a, I'm a KKK senator. Welcome. There, there's an author I want to shout out that you. I think uh, once Natty's quiet. There's an author I want to uh, <laughs> shout out who I think actually could be helpful to some listeners for understanding the 20th century sort of evolution of the relationship between. Uh, government sort of, you could call it in the way that you were saying, Forrest, um, propaganda, but also then aesthetics and how that develops culturally speaking, who's who's called Fred Turner, who's at um, Stanford. And some of his books, I think, are pivotal for understanding the way that sort of late mid-century um, aesthetic production context sort of turns over into that countercultural mode that then gives rise to things like, like this uh, this film, which, you know, is not obviously directly addressed, but I think can, can be enmeshed in a sort of broader context of this neoliberal kind of movement that we've touched on a little bit here, but. Well, that, that um, military to, to counterculture to like these, these overlaps, right? This military counterculture, like this, like inside outside of like 
religion mm-hmm. is commercial, not commercial, right? Or like, well, like that's more complex, right? Right, but like the the mapping is complex in that way. It's kind of like all, all of a sudden right? we're all of a sudden uh-huh. we're crossing a bridge, right? And we're we're going uh-huh. to a cabin to fuck because uh-huh. we gotta, you know, we gotta go into the woods. Um <laughs> but yeah, and I, I've seen like a, a fair number of these sorts of slasher films, and I'm interested in like the the political economy and philosophy of the way nature is figured in, in cinema. And I think one thing that's kind of interesting about this film is what I kept thinking of with regards to the sort of situation of the spirits and, and nature in this is, is really this understanding of the market as almost nature, right? Um, in the way that there's no getting outside of it um, in, in this particular context. And the, no matter how much goodwill you assert or try to, to offer, whether it's, you know, burying your your zombie girlfriend or however you want to put it right there's um ultimately you will always lose right and so this there's this sort of systemic critique that i think does come out a little bit in this even though ultimately its only answer is to submit to these forces and so so what you're saying it's like a necronomicon realism yeah i mean that i you know i'm i i will i will i'm always uh, saying i'm always saying that as well (laughs) I will, I will Soviet, Soviet yes. Evil Dead, Soviet Evil Dead, Michigan necromantic realism. I mean, Natty was just texting me about that the other day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think one thing that did catch me that I that I found really interesting is the um, the cinematography of of Evil Dead and the way it 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 really situates the however you could call it, whether it's the spirits or, or whoever is the sort of guiding hand of this evil sort of um, construction in it with a sort of agency, right? The, uh, you know, you caught, you (laughs) caught what I was uh, throwing up in the air Um, with this sort of agency, right? It, it, the way the swooping and panning and moving and, and especially that ending. Right. And, um, and so I do think there's, there's, there are things to tease out of this film, even though obviously it has its um, it has its problems, which we covered sort of shortly. But yeah, I, you know, I I do appreciate going back to it. I, I've seen it once before um, before this you know this this podcast. But um, yeah, uh, I have it's, seen it's every single Sam Raimi film, and uh you know like these are actually the hallmarks of it because you can see it in uh dark man you can see it in um uh you know the spider-man films you can see it even in some of the smaller films like for the love of the game he he even does that a little bit which is Mm. which is a romantic baseball film uh, of all things and and it's it's actually baseball that's all of the baseball films (laughs) pretty much uh it's yeah it's about a guy dealing with his girlfriend leaving him uh, you know, played by Kevin Costner, who's playing a perfect game. <laughs> all Kevin Costner. All well. Kevin Costner. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. No, it's 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 better than like you think it is. Like like I, I, I do... like Kevin Costner baseball movies. You know. Okay, I'm not a I'm not a sports guy. And you uh, said you yeah. weren't a genre person. Um, oh, what is it? A genre? No, I said you genre. said you weren't a genre person. And there you are I'm with not, the Kevin Costner not, baseball I'm movies. Not, I'm not a genre. This genre. <laughs> Oh, okay. So we should be talking about for the love of the game. 
Either that or Real Housewives. I don't, I don't think I would go that far. Yeah. <laughs> I can appreciate a Kevin Costner baseball movie in a cheesy way. It's like funny shit. There's no, like something interesting about it that there's like a hundred of them. And there's sort of this, like, there, like a lot of things, just the same way we don't like endorse everything in Evil Dead, right? Or whatever. Like it's an interesting portrait of a time in different ways. And, and I think... I'm interested in genre in that way. And yeah, like I think Kevin Costner movies are romantic baseball movies are totally a genre and there's their cheese ball as fuck, but there is like a certain portrait of something important, uh, part of something who knows what, and it makes things too. I mean, there's a lot of interesting currents that go through lots of different types of, uh, genres. Absolutely. Of yeah, course. It, That's what's interesting. It, That's it, part of the fun play. And the whole thing that makes the movie interesting, though, is the the uh, those those camera tricks because the movie's all about just Kevin Costner on the on the pitching mound, thinking back about his relationship. I mean, it's it's that's not true. that exciting of a movie. You know, when you're, that when you're... That's not the Susan Sarandon relationship, or that's no, not, um, not Bull Durham. Uh, uh, Travolta's wife, um, Kelly okay. Preston. <laughs> Kelly Preston is yeah. <laughs> um, but. See when you're when you're when you're you know when you're trying not to come, you just sit there and you think about baseball. When you're trying to play the perfect game, you sit there and you think about all the times you fucked. So, so that's all what, of that's Sam Raimi's movies about. Yeah. So, so all of Sam Raimi's movies Genre. are about submitting, right? I mean, they're about submission. I think that's that's what we've come to. What are you getting at, Max? What I'm getting at, I don't. I don't well, I've we've seen videos of Sam Raimi, so I, I don't know that. Um, <laughs> Well, well, no, no, actually, Darkman, truly, because because you know, just that one scene, take the fucking elephant, is is you know, truly. Spider Man literally sends come out of his hand. That's if the, I had a nickel, yeah. Um... Shopping at TJ Maxx again. <laughs> now, now she's referencing um, my Twitter feed, but um... that's where we all are born. So. Um... Now I'm thinking about Spider-Man in a whole new way. This is very interesting. Um, but I feel like we've gone, we've gone on a tangent. I, I will admit I had not thought about that before. With, with, great, with great power bottom comes great responsibility. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Um. I think every party has responsibilities. That's yeah. that's dependence, which we're really it's it's a big part of the superstructure uh, message. Um. Um, no, so I think I think something interesting that you're uh, touching on is the idea of um, markets and watching that interview later on, um, and Ramey starts talking about um, like market forces and how you know like like how how the market is oversaturated with a certain kind of film and. Uh, horror film and you need to deliver something new or else, you know, that's how you rise to the top of the market. So he's obviously thinking in, in those terms, which makes it incredibly interesting that he's really the first big like Marvel um, director. You know what I mean? Like in the sense of like Spider-Man being like a, a precursor to the Marvel movies that came out, you know, right after that and being a, a Marvel property. So and Darkman being a precursor to that. So, you know, check out Darkman. What's uh, Darkman? I don't, I don't know Darkman. Sounds a little, sounds a little like something Jesse Helms would, uh, right. <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> no, Dark Man is this, this, uh, uh they, they actually tried to get Bruce Campbell a star in it and, uh, the studio wouldn't buy it. So, so they, uh, they got Liam Neeson instead and he plays it with every bit of gritty intensity that he brings to, uh, Taken. 
uh, except except with lines like "Take the fucking elephant." Um, and it's uh, uh, he 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 basically he's this guy. Wait, who, was that was that this, Reagan's campaign slogan? Take the elephant. Take the Take fucking the elephant. elephant. Yeah. yeah. No. Well, the funny thing is, is, is I remember uh, watching it like on USA where they, they cut out all the, the language in those things, and, and uh, the edit for that was "take the fuzzy elephant," which always made me laugh. Um, Again, I just gotta say, it, it, you did great with that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like I said, Sam Raimi films are like in my blood. Are you cut me? Do I not yeah, yeah. Raimi? <laughs> right, right. You bleed right over the uh, projector again. Um, exactly, and, and into the light bulbs. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, uh, I, you know, <laughs> constantly. Um, I. So the market forces thing is funny because the first, as the first sort of Marvel director, I just feel like. I feel like there—that's not—that's not enough of a of a description for the way that the original Spider-Man movies, and maybe this is just where I was when I saw them for the first time. Um, still, they still have a campiness that that just you can't find you can't find later on, except in like some very niche spaces. But um, that oh, feels def- very oh, different definitely. to me. No, yeah. it, it definitely feels really different. I mean, the later Marvel movies kind of just feel like military propaganda at that point. Um, I, I don't well, think that. I mean, like you know, I, I think mean, there's the, more there's more to them than that. But I I hear what you're saying in a way that, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I mean, I, I've, you, I've watched I've watched a bunch of them. I enjoyed everything up to Endgame. I think I'm oversaturated with Marvel movies at this point. But, I love I love Marvel movies. But. <laughs> But like you know, it's not. It's not. You're right. It's not Spider Man. I mean, it doesn't have the kind of uh, the deeper narrative. But like you know, there's a lot of like the the narrative essence of Spider Man. Kind of this this uh, retelling of it that's not necessarily. It doesn't feel like it's trying to push anything onto you. It's just kind of giving you kind of a fun movie experience that maybe is making the most of uh, CGI in a way that you know all of these other Sam Raimi movies aren't. They're just kind of. Um, you know, like it, it's just kind of playing with a lot of different special effects and stuff, and and playing with a lot of fake blood. And I know Andy, you want us to mention that you're in, you have a red light on, and and it's terrifying. Um, <laughs> no, I bled into the uh, into the light right. bulb. So, uh, <laughs> sorry. but but I do want to mention that uh, we are getting another Raimi uh, Marvel movie coming out um, in production now. Uh, Doctor Strange 2 in the Multiverse of Madness. Uh, and Bruce Campbell uh, is supposed to be in it because he's in every Grammy film. Who's Bruce Campbell? I know he's the star, but like, what's his story? I don't... This, th- no, this is a story. I, you know, getting involved in, in, in Evil Dead and getting involved in Sam Raimi movies and just being kind of repeatedly used in them as time goes on. And then they turned Ash versus Evil Dead into a, a, a like a tv show series for a little while that was extra campy and like yeah he, he had like a, a cult following so he had a a bunch of different tv shows some of them were successful like uh burn notice uh was was a lot of fun mm. others worked like one. jack of all trades which um i unfortunately watched they had Vern troyer play uh napoleon um he was like a 17th century superhero like when you make the bit your entire show <laughs> yeah <laughs> It's the show's terrible. Um, it was shown with Cleopatra twenty five twenty five. 
Uh, it's interesting. But, um, um, Bruce Campbell considers himself kind of a, a corollary to um, a lot of the old like B movie actors. Like that's kind of how he describes himself. Which you know, as time goes on, like he's been in a lot of really big things. I mean, maybe not necessarily as like a big role, but like an interesting pop to the Reagan thing is he played Reagan in the second season of Fargo. And he was like the only actor to be in both the Coen brothers Fargo and, um, and the show Fargo, I think at the time. And so, he's the only uh, actor to play a character who's defeated Spider-Man in a Spider-Man film. Yeah. So he's the, he's the winner. <laughs> <laughs> so he's the only one who's really in charge. Um. <laughs> uh, and, and rumor is, and, and I think this might be a, uh, uh, a, uh, an April Fool's joke, but because uh, because uh, this came out on April Fool's, but the scene in uh, Doctor Strange is uh, he's playing Ash, and they're going to be at the house. I you know you know what's funny about um, talking about Doctor Strange is uh, we're going to do um, we're doing uh, um, the the why do I always blank on the fucking name? But we're doing the Bong Joon Ho uh, film on Sunday, um, and, and we're we're doing oh, uh, uh, Snowpiercer. Oh, yeah, Snow. Why do I always blank? I always blank on that fucking name. I've seen that movie like ten times. So yeah, we're doing Snowpiercer on um, on Sunday, and obviously Tilda Swinton's in that. And um, I was watching a bunch of uh, Bong Joon Ho's interviews that he did after Snowpiercer um, actually came out, and after Parasite really blew up as much as it did. And you know, he he went around a lot with uh, Tilda Swinton because she seems like, in some strange way, that's his muse, like. For, for a big part of his career. So like Tilda Swinton is kind of- So strange. <laughs> so, so no, but like, no, she's a, she's a great actress, but you know, you think of someone's muse of like, someone that they're like, a lot of times like either sexualizing or that's driving like the passion in their films. And with, it's very much not the case in Snowpiercer with her like Margaret Thatcher-esque character. And like, I, they just seem to legitimately be really good friends. And like he- That's some people's thing. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's interesting though that everybody kind of got really, really upset the first Doctor Strange that she was playing like a, a formerly Tibetan man character because yeah, who was also a stereotype, which which like they needed to change him because like if they didn't, everybody would just be like, oh, he's a racial stereotype. I mean, I think um, there's a deeper reason, which is that China wouldn't let Alex Cox brought this up actually, and I hadn't really thought about it that deeply, but. Uh, China wouldn't have let Marvel play a movie with a, you know, the wise, uh, the wise character that's in charge being a Tibetan character. Um, you know, I, I don't think that that would have sat well with them. So Marvel changed it. No yeah, the ancient one was just like a bald dude with a Fu Manchu and just a big stereotype. To be to be totally honest with you, he was yeah. um, not necessarily Tibetan at first. It was just like Jack Kirby doing his thing. Um, and uh, then you know it just it, the character evolved after that. So, uh, but yeah, it it came out of like just stereotypical imagery of of the the wise Asian guy, and uh, it, it makes sense to change it. But at the same time, I, I kind of get like, yeah, there's not a lot of great roles for Asian actors out there. I'm glad they kept Wong as a uh, Asian guy, um, but. So you know, not, I, not don't, I, I, I don't I don't know enough to be honest. But no, so so it's interesting going into um watching uh Bong Joon Ho and Tilda Swinton talk about Snowpiercer, and it, it legitimately seems like that's kind of his muse for multiple of his films throughout his career. Like, you know, she goes around with him and she seems to be the one the one actress that like completely understands uh his filmmaking and like the class aspects of it, which you know is also interesting because she's been a, a famous, you know, well regarded uh 
UK actor for, you know, since, since whenever, like, um, and was considered David Bowie for a while. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, up until they they did that music video together, but the whole thing was like, oh, have you never seen Tilda uh, Tilda Swinton and David Bowie in the same room at the same time? And so then yeah. they made a music video. It, 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 could be, it could be a conspiracy. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I think I think what I want is a Tilda Swinton baseball movie now, um. <laughs> <laughs> where she plays Kevin Costner playing right. a baseball player that's thinking back on his relationship. <laughs> with with where's who, where's the with, funding? Better yet, right, have him play yeah. the guy who p- pitched the perfect game on acid. Like that guy's that, awesome. That, that is, that is I think legit. That's he, legit. That seems like the right way to do it. Yeah, because he had the epic <laughs> quote of um uh like sometimes when I don't believe in myself, I think about I think about dinosaurs and I believe in dinosaurs, and then I think somewhere out there the dinosaurs know I exist and they believe in me. I mean it's kind of hard. Kind of, just killing it. You're absolutely killing it tonight. I want to get his dealer's number. You know. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of, it kind of sucks. Do I believe in di- Do I believe in dinosaurs? Do I not? Like that's a good question. <laughs> it's an important question. <laughs> yeah. but also, but also, as a black athlete, there until the swim yeah. goes again, taking another, taking another role from a. Well, you have a, to be careful. Well, but they wrote it as a stereotypical black man, so you had to give it to a white woman. So. I, oh, okay. Wasn't he yeah. also gay no, really, and invented the high five? I, I don't. This, this seems like this seems like kind of that one of those legendary things where they just keep attributing things to one person. Yeah, no, he would like hang outside the gay bar and like high five people, and it kind of caught on after that. I feel like that's not a real story, but I don't. It's have a one. real story. I heard it on the dollop, so you know, you know it's true. I lost a little bit the thread, but <laughs> <laughs> I haven't. I haven't had a smoke in a while, so. <laughs> I haven't taken any acid in a while, so there you go. I, That's you why know. you haven't pitched the perfect game. Yeah. <laughs> I've been trying. It just doesn't happen. Which now, um, that, I, now that I hear it, feels like a metamor- metaphor in itself. But anyway, I'm, I'm going to leave that. It's like, uh, I have a weird obsession with just like strange facts like this. So, you know, just go with it. I hmm. love it. I mean, we all know strange <laughs> facts. It's just that's 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 part of the game. Is we're like, uh, oh, I'm just started getting echo, but yeah, like that's the thing. Is like it's fun to try to like riff off where what people's facts are and how you can really relate to that because there's so many different fact sets people have. Another it's fun fact: producer okay. of this movie, Robert Tappard, is married to Lucy Lawless after the uh, TV show that Sam Raimi. Lucy Lawless, uh, they did the Hercules and Xena shows. I know and, Xena. And Bruce Campbell was in, in uh, he was Autolocles, the thief. And uh, Ted Raimi, brother of Sam Raimi, played another character who I'm blanking on his name. It was a fairly do you, remember, do you remember the episode of uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry David ends up going on a date and like doing well with her and then um, like right after his divorce or something and and you ever see that episode of Curb? I mean, I've seen a lot of Curb episodes. I'm not sure if I remember them all precisely. Well, did you ever watch Sequest DSV? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Maddie, you should not be here if you've not watched that, to be honest. <laughs> oh, fuck. Uh, oh, how, right. about, how about Hard Target with a... 
well it's interesting okay but like you but what it is interesting because you kind of brought up something Forrest about like um Bruce Campbell identifying as is a b-movie actor right and like tying that into funding and then talking about all these and that's why he's in the LGBTQ community He's the beast. Sure, sure. And then all these and then all these uh different genre movies and all these different genre movies, like you know, these niches that people are in there. I don't know like what Maybe there is, but there there Yeah, it's interesting, like what does it mean this in the sort of history of of funding, like what does that say? What can we learn from like the patterns of different types of artistic creative production and how you can't get outside the funding of that, right? And the shape of the society. And um, it's Natty, are you trying These to say that reflections? Are you trying to say that B movies are socially constructed? <laughs> no, gross. <laughs> Bisexuals are found in nature. That's right. That's um, where you kill them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think I think it's I think it's interesting. Um, also, that kind of B movies were the death of the studio system because uh, enough B movies could kind of be constructed by smaller studios um, like United Artists that weren't necessarily within the United States and weren't necessarily um, funded to the level that uh, the bigger studios were. So suddenly there was like competition in a way that, because some B movies are like obviously good movies, like, you know, or like, or popular movies or fun movies. Of course. So of course. The, I mean, the one funding, of the biggest movies of 1990 of was uh, Golden, you know, by Golden Harvest. Which was a uh, Chinese? Uh, no, maybe. I can't remember if it's Chinese or Japanese, but but they uh, they made the Ninja Turtles movie, and, and it was like one of the biggest movies of the year. Yeah. So so you know, there's the destruction of the 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 studio system, which kind of feels like the most U.S. Uh, especially during like the Cold War, like the the most uh, like like capitalist system that you could possibly have, where a very small amount of like six companies are able to make all of the movies, and if they decide to blacklist you. Um, altogether you're suddenly not able to work and you know the studio system obviously and the Hays code fall apart because internationally and you know even within the united states like it, it started to be possible to make independent movies in the sense of big financiers running small studios so kind of breaking apart that monopoly in in a very kind of fast way i mean you said like the french new wave and people suddenly started to wa want to watch french new wave movies because the u.s wasn't necessarily um producing movies that that didn't really fall into this very small studio system approved, uh, you know, like, like, I guess, dichotomy. And um, so this is kind of an even further, um, you know, obviously within within capitalism, like, then all of a sudden, those small studios are bought up by big financiers, who are always tied to the big studios. Are those and, are those like big daddies? Yeah, big daddies. <laughs> yeah, which is all owned by Disney now anyways. But you know, and you also left out that, that in the 80s, uh, probably in the 70s too, but, but definitely in the 80s and into the 90s, there were a lot of uh, mobsters uh, produced films. Like they were, they were laundering their money, which is where Sopranos yeah. got the idea uh, to, to do that on, the, on an episode. So like, that's where you got like Steven Seagal. Story arc, my friends. That was a... That was oh, a <laughs> It's, sorry, it's I'm sorry. <laughs> it's interesting, though, to think um, like what you're talking about, Forrest, about the sort of industrial history, um, about like the the ambivalence there, because at once Sam Raimi's able to go door to door and do his crowdfunding model for making Which is a really funny thought. Film. That guy going door to door and being like, "I made this 30 minute movie. Do you want to invest some money in my?" <laughs> I, I don't know that I okay, could say Forrest, no to Sam would Raimi. You, yeah, Forrest, would you would you have given him money? Yeah, 
if I exactly. had money, yeah. yeah. I'd be exactly. like, let me get my let me get my purse upstairs. Just the fact someone came to your door for a slasher fic is pretty you're like, well, I gotta hand it to you. And then like a year later, like after the film finally got distributed, he was like in uh top secret, uh Sam Raimi. So so like you know, uh kind of like how Quentin Tarantino, um, well not not to the degree, because Quentin Tarantino was starring in movies, which was stupid. Um, because if you ever watch Destiny Turns on the Radio, terrible movie. Um every Friday night. Um <laughs> but but it but there, there's this moment of ambivalence, right? Because we can say at one hand, like, okay, it, it's maybe kind of cool that this new kind of voice could could make a film like this that doesn't accord to the traditional cultural industrial modes of of Hollywood filmmaking. But at the same time, there's like a a, a deeper socio-political cultural turn towards a more atomized funding structure for things like art and 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 then across the board, right? A a sort of decentralization, quote unquote, if you will, that that sort of defines the the neoliberal moment. And so and there's, there's, and there's the incentive, there's a market incentive to create things that is going they're going to appeal to a bigger uh, a funding base. So you're not necessarily going to ask a bunch of people that you go to their doors, hey, do you want to be part of this thing? No, this movie making a bigger social or political commentary. You're just going to, you know what I mean? So your movie right. is suddenly like, I, I'm trying to make a movie for people that want to watch slasher movies and horror movies. And it's kind of this vapid, this vapid incentive um, in some ways, I think, that comes into having a big funding base. Right. And so one of the things that then like I would want to posit on the back end for like a more bro a broader critique of the the sort of both aesthetic, thematic, and then political logics that go into this film is is precisely the naturalization of that sort of neoliberal funding model as a matter of its sort of thematics of inevitability. And, and we can even say that there's maybe promise in a, a sort of pseudo-democratization of that funding with this sort of this sort of newness, but ultimately this newness, this sort of countercultural mode does collapse back into um, a, a corporate sort of zero sum model for, for aesthetic production, precisely because it's not actively, at least on my reading, politicizing those, those public modes, right? That yeah. would be necessary to have really radical art that takes on all of these questions simultaneously. But that's yeah. also just me on my soapbox. No, um, I mean, I no, I 100% agree. It's and, a good soapbox. Okay. And, and, but, you can, but you can see that also within, you know, Sam Raimi becoming the, the person that kind of starts a, a new wave of superhero movies. Like, you, he's not somebody that's controversial enough. That was that, Sam himself who did that? Well, I mean, you know, he's given funding um, to make the, the, the Spider-Man movies. And, like, I'm not, I'm not trashing that, but I'm saying, like, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, I guess it doesn't, uh, you know, empower a social or political critique in any way, shape or form. You, you know what this, this remind reminds me of is um, Chloe Zhao's movement from Nomadland to the Eternals. There's something, there's something so now, in. Now we're on another genre. <laughs> well, well, like, there's something in the movement wait, from like. The, a, what are those, what are those things? <laughs> well, Nomadland is the, the recent film um, that Chloe Zhao made, which is like a movement towards nature. It's a very sort of, okay. um, uh, it has a sort of naturalism vibe. I, I, I okay. There's a lot to say about it, but there's, okay. there's yeah. something, it's meant to be like a sort of rat, radical embrace of poverty. 
And um, yeah, li- and I mean, a liberal, a liberal embrace. Very, very much yeah. so. Yeah, right? it's, um, it's an anti uh, uh, Amazon book turned into a pro Amazon movie. Yeah, right. But it, but there is something very humanist about it. That is, yeah, that, yeah. that sticks with the humanist tradition of going out into nature. That that then that fetishizes that sort of meandering white mode, right? And then, but there's there's something we all know it. We know it when you see it. Um, you and- can't you can't get me started on this. I did so much uh, content on on Nomadland when it came out. I was on This Is Revolution to talk about it, but I also you know. Um, we we like watched it on on give them an argument. We watched it on a whole bunch of different like I watched it on a whole bunch of different platforms and like we deconstructed it with so many different people. But it, it kind of also internalizes um it, it internalizes poverty in a way I that kind of it, it internalizes <laughs> poverty in a way that like kind of uh, that hashtag van life um kind of kind of thing right. becomes something that's that's you know it's no longer um which which is insidious because. Her town in the beginning of it literally deindustrializes and shuts down. The town is right. no more. And that's what which, brings her. Yeah, yeah. Which is punk though. And I think that brings us back. There is there are elements of punk in that hashtag van life. So I I just think then yeah. without coming back right. and, and making the Eternals, which is coming out, which is a, a Marvel movie, has a it has a similar resonance to me to this Sam Ra- Raimi movement from Evil Dead to the Spider-Man movies, even if it's not identical because nothing is, but the there's something interesting to me about the way that flips, right? That the going out into the forest becomes going into the industrial capital to to make the the, the next big mass produced blockbuster. Yeah. Well, and, and, the, and, the other thing and, too, and I think in the mythology, I think probably too, that Detroit has a certain place, right? There's a certain I know you've had Varn a lot on the show. I don't know what one of his episodes he was talking the other day about how like Minneapolis had just as much of like a deindustrialization, so-called. But I know also Scott, Scott Ferguson will talk about Robocop and say deindustrialization is like a a misnomer in some ways. Right. Like there's moving places. But Detroit also has this like very potent place and kind of this imaginary of like what that means. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, because you know, the most American, most American possible industry at the time is 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 the car manufacturing industry. Like, you know what I mean? Like, the center of that. I, I get, is, I get the mythology. No, yeah. no, I know, but I'm so right. when that deindustrializes, it's like literally the symbol of um, it's the symbol of of really like this Keynesian American growth uh, fading away, just in 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 one city. In the same way that if Broadway burned down, we'd be like, oh, the musical capital of the world. There might be, you know, there might be musical. Is that how is that how things work? They like kind of just burn and melt and fade. I mean, it in the case of uh, you know, in the case of Keynesianism and, and this Detroit, um, this Detroit symbol of it, I would say we're, we we kind of lived it's through Dick Hart's Dick Hart's wax. <laughs> we're gonna quibble with Keynesianism on there, but I we understand yeah. what you what you're referring to. We do. Max is being so much nicer than me. That's not fair. <laughs> This is usually how it goes. This was how it was when we interviewed Matt Christman. Um, <laughs> Damn, you guys, I just wanted to bring it back. We're, 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 we're picky bitches. We're picky bitches. We're like, we are. Kinsian is more complicated. I, well, <laughs> it's, it's the, I mean, it's the liberal. No, Andy, liberal, you don't get to talk, Andy. Sorry. It's the it's uh. liberal uh, idea under, um, I mean, from FDR. That's nice. Really to, That's nice. <laughs> from... From FDR, really, to LBJ, this this idea that you know there's some you know uh, which I think is really 
copping out of any kind of real reform, but it's this idea that, you know, economically there's some deal struck between, uh, you know, labor and uh, industry that, you know, um, there won't be anything too, too crazy or too, uh, you know, too revolutionary as long as kind of the middle classes continue to gain wealth. I, I and, really wish Keynes wrote that. Um, that'd be pretty cool. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a very liberal thing, right? But I just, mm-hmm. you know, as a matter of nuts and bolts, we're going to disagree on the on the Keynesianism part. Well, but, do, I mean, you, not... do you or do you not want us, us meaning Max, to uh, to go ahead and like give a full finance rundown? <laughs> we come I, from I the left I'll, MT I'll, I'll do this. I'll do this. I'll do this deal. The the. The economic thought, um, the economic thought popularized as Keynesianism, right? The neoclassical Keynesian synthesis, which is very different than than different traditions of Keynesianism. But like, I, I do think we agree on the on the 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 guiding the guiding point of your critique, which is that the sort of industrial mode of that era, right, and it it falls away for a lot of different reasons. But um, but it's it's good. I, I think we should find more things to argue about. Um, <laughs> no, I got something well, right then, here. We're talking about nature, <laughs> nature, ver- like, because when you like, na- I think my point is, it's interesting to think about the ways we like naturalize the the um, dialectic between industry and nature, right? And that it's interesting the the way we kind of mythologize like Detroit is okay. Well, that's cars. That's true industry, and it just like melted like the wax, you know, and then we're in nature where, you know, there's interesting ideology that's, you know, it's fun to trace to the historical moment and think about what it's also telling. Well, I think, I think also, telling, you know, three, I think there's really three big modes. I mean, you know, there's obviously like a romanticism in the, in the starting in the 19th century of nature itself. And this kind of, this kind of movement to romanticize uh, the, the natural habitat as uh, industrialism starts. And then industrialism kind of starts and, you know, and really continues all the way into, you know, the 1970s, 1980s, when it starts to be this deindustrialization mode in the United States, where it's kind of this third, this, I don't want to say third way, because, you know, that has other connotations, but like this, this third, this third phase. It's, an, it's where, another option that's in the middle. Well, this third phase <laughs> where, <laughs> no, we're both, we're both nature seems to be fading away, obviously. And, and there's a lot of, you know, people are environmentalists and are, are, pushing stories that you know bring nature back obviously but industrial in, in the united states industrial production that's the story they tell bring nature no but back. no but no what i'm saying like that's the, you know the, the story like i'm talking about media critique of things like that's the okay. media you know so both both nature like both the environmental aspect and the industrial aspect are kind of falling apart and you know at, at the same time and now we're kind of in this third phase i'd say of of a lot of stories that don't necessarily ha- know how to tell that uh, third. So you get things like Nomadland, where they very much acknowledge that in, in industrial, you know, like her town literally shut down. Like you know, they very much acknowledge that, you know, her town deindustrialized. But then there's no, there's nowhere they can really bring that story in that. Well, loss, of, loss of employment, loss of security, loss yeah. of a, a living. And yeah, loss of really, I mean, everything. So what it, what it becomes is a story about the human spirit a story about um, something innate within her, I think, in, in Nomadland that like really brings her to live in a van. Like it, it's almost like it's something genetic within her that she's living in a van because you know, and and it and it there's a lot of um, they really have a lot of people in that that are legitimately 
living through poverty and are living in these situations where they're living in vans or living in um, uh, housing insecure situations. Like the, the actors in Nomadland are taken from, you know, real people they found on the road that, um, because, you know, Francis McDermott was like working at a Target, working at a Target and pretending that people didn't know that it was Francis McDermott and she didn't get special treatment. Like there's the, the mythology behind that. So they're telling these stories, but at the same time, there's no critique of why that has happened in the first place. The only way to go, the, the only place to go from there is this, is this humanist idea that like, oh, she's an interesting, cool person, but something innate within her leads her to travel. And it's like, so instead of poverty, it becomes wanderlust in that movie specifically. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I would put wandering and innate together, but regardless. It, no, but I mean, <laughs> well, you haven't, you haven't. You haven't seen the. You haven't seen. It's, no a, enough, it's a right? psychosocial. It's a psychosocial. I think that's how I how I would phrase it. Yeah. But, um, right. And I and it. You know. I'm such I a mean, bitch. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I was specifically talking about the the narrative of Nomadland, where she goes back to her sister's house and is having this conversation, and they're like, "Oh, you never wanted to stay put. You were unable to stay put. We've given you re like her sister's living in this big house with her husband, and she's like." We've, we've given you the resources that you could technically just live at our house and start your life over again, but something innately within her, like almost like a genetic, almost like it's something genetic or something, you know, so far in her psychology that is leading her to live this life rather than a state of economic deprivation, which I think would be the, the actual critique is like, you know, because they're telling these really sad stories of people that have been through hardship and end up living in this situation. But then the main character is someone who like, could just go back to their sister's house and live there and doesn't want to. I see. I see. Okay. Yeah. My my it's the base, here. Natty. It's the base. Get it together. <laughs> um, Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um with all this talk of nature, I wanted to bring up the birds, but you know, maybe we maybe don't have time for that. No, I mean yeah, we so, talk, sometimes we, we're on ideological deep cuts. Yeah. Our uh, our our last our Thursday episode before this one, last Thursday was on the birds. So I'm I'm ready to talk about that for the last couple of minutes. No, he, um, meant, he meant birds. Oh, but like, now, but now it can be both. And Andy's gone, which, to be honest, I feel better. Um, <laughs> I hate Ben Burgess. Um, no, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, does this, movie, does this movie night have an intermission for a smoke break? No. No, but I'm about, it, to, I'm about to. I'm about to end. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, winding he's it gonna down. cut us off. Ending. Oh my god! Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Well, I've been doing three-hour episodes, and I don't think. I mean, I know what happens. What? What, one hour and thirteen minutes. We're not so special it's... enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, we go on about uh, about the birds. I guess as a well, I, we were just no, referring I'm just to. I'm just yeah, we were. <laughs> Natty has a recent superstructure monologue called Birdicide, um, which I I I think everyone should uh, listen to if they haven't yet. Um, <laughs> He's back. There he's back. back. There he's back. Now I, I love Ben Burgess. Um, my yeah, I love just Ben Burgess. Turned off. Buy his book. Uh, <laughs> like, what the hell? I told um, you not to let Ben buy you a laptop. <laughs> <laughs> I almost took him to a Mac store this weekend. <laughs> That's What's a whole a Mac? other story. No, a Mac store? I, I, no, like, I mean, Mac and cheese. No, I understand what the max store is, but I mean, like, what's the? But you said it like I almost did it, and I, I, I don't know what the. No, we. I saw him this past weekend, so that's all. That's yeah. That's the end of the story. Next time you see him, you should mention us. Um, and anyway, that's uh, that's been this show. Thanks for thanks for having us on. No, no, it was amazing. Yeah, I had fun. Honestly, he doesn't care.
Good. The worst, the worst indictment ever. Um, <laughs> like he, he likes to disagree with people. I mean, look at the name of a show. So like, I uh, I got I got into a um, I got into an argument. I went to my grandma's ninetieth birthday, and um, she was like really. See, I I refrained for an entire week. She's the worst person I know. I refrained for an entire week. Finally, the last day that I was there, I was about to take the bus back upstate, and uh, which sounds like I went back to prison, but I, I swear. <laughs> um, so I, I went to take the bus back, and she was just railing on like unemployment benefits. Which after I had been like, "Hey, like I'm currently like making the most of unemployment benefits after working four jobs for the last year," and so I, I was like, finally, I just like, I was like, she was like, she was like, "Oh, you're always arguing," and I was like, "Well, I, you know." I spent a year working for a show called Give Them an Argument, and I thought that's what I was doing, but all right then. <laughs> he just doesn't understand dialectics. Yeah. Neoliberalism is a bitch. <laughs> She's on Long Island. She's uh, transcended the neoliberalism part and 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 re like reached the Marie Antoinette, like sitting on a throne, while while everybody else kind of does work around her part. But I guess that's I've heard, I've, I've, I've heard about that phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I guess I'll give everybody a chance to give uh, final thoughts on this movie, um, Evil Dead, if, in case everyone, anyone forgot, because we got real distracted there. Um, I don't know. Starting with Max. So, I mean, I think I said most of what I want to say. I, I enjoyed watching it again. Um, yeah, I, I think it, it reveals something interesting about its time. And so it, it makes sense that one would want to watch it and talk about it on a show. Um, I, you know, I've, I've enjoyed uh, chatting with you guys, uh, jeering a bit, but, um, yeah, you know, uh, thank, thanks for having us on. That's just and, how we uh, live. That's just how we live. <laughs> we, yeah, I didn't, we do. I didn't really, I didn't expect any different. Um, good. Knives, <laughs> knives of truth, you know? <laughs> Yeah, no, I thought it was interesting. I, I will admit I hadn't seen it and then I watched it. And it was interesting. Yeah, there was interesting in the 1981 and the woods and I don't know. It was it, I'm not like a huge knowledgeable person as far as horror movies. And you can you can kind of feel like in its bones, like how of the genre it is. Like you feel like you just get a lot of the, the tropes and the movements and the 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 local color and just what I don't know like it has it? classic beats in a lot of ways I think which is the 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 market forces of it right I mean it's you know Sam Raimi looking at what audiences specifically you know getting obsessed with audiences and and the market of that and thinking what works and what doesn't work and then trying to turn up the aspects that work to an eleven um, in a way that's kind of Pete Buttigieg level sociopathic in some ways like hmm. looking at you know what I mean like like looking at like what would be tantalizing to an audience and kind of trying to work his movie towards that in, in a weird sense. But at the same time, I think there is a, a punk rock dynamic of the DIY element of it, which I do think um, meshes into the neoliberal era because, you know, suddenly it's like, oh, well, you know, um, funding isn't going to come for us. Um, we need to kind of do this ourselves. So I, I think that, that that definitely plays into that. But at the same time, there is that, you know, that punk uh, cultural aesthetic where it's like, if our culture isn't going to be, or our ideas aren't going to be represented by funding in these ways, we need to kind of create our own apparatus, 
which obviously just you know reinforces neoliberalism in a way that's um, incredibly damaging for the next <laughs> 40 years. But at the same time, it's understandable if you're an artist trying to create something without uh, organic funding sources, I guess. You knock on every every door you see. That's what Patreon's for. Yeah. <laughs> you got your real so little our Patreon today? Yeah. Um, nice. See the, the the fun part of Patreon and, and literally living in an age that's so like oversaturated with art, I guess in some ways online, is that you can find a niche where you can really get funding from people that kind of believe similarly to the ways that you do if you build up some kind of I mean, I hate branding and like, but like, if you build up some kind of following around that, I think you can create things that are more um, attuned to like the political or social commentary that you want to make, as opposed to uh, walking up to doors and just being like, "Oh, I hope I make something that doesn't offend like the old lady that just gave me a hundred bucks to <laughs> buy fake blood to dump on my high school friend." <laughs> <laughs> And that's that's what this movie is about. <laughs> <laughs> it's a franchise of, of, of him going, this is my high school friend that people seem to want to punch in the face. Let me dump as much fake blood as I can on him. And I think that Bruce Campbell is a really amazing... I mean, Bruce Campbell kind of has this weird connection to uh, uh, Hollywood and, and this... Um, in the sense of, like, classic Hollywood. Like, he sees himself in the tradition of these B-movie actors... And, and if you go back to the majestic too, he gets to play a classic Hollywood actor. Yeah. Well, he also gets to play Reagan and Fargo, but <laughs> the man who started it all. No, it's a man of, Carter, of many, but... a man of many talents. <laughs> the man of middling talents <laughs> on all on all fronts, but who led a, a, a down a fun, uh, a fun top down revolution that really just consolidated. That, that would be. That would be... That would be one way to put it. <laughs> he can really take a bookshelf. <laughs> that. Andy. Uh, oh well, I gotta say, like, like, um, this is always like uh, the third one is like one of my all-time favorite films, Army of Darkness. I didn't make it forever. that far. Uh, oh, oh, it's it's uh, it's slapstick with Shakespearean actors. It's it's plus you got uh, Ted Raimi plays like four different roles in the movie. Um, right. Which is a lot of fun. He played the, uh, you know, the mother in the basement and, and uh, part, uh, part two. No. This was my first evil dead uh, venture. Uh, but yeah, that's Sam Raimi's brother in makeup. <laughs> okay. Uh, playing oh, her. Um, and, and he's, he's uh, the fisherman that waves at the car at the, uh, at the beginning of this one. Um, but yeah, T Ted Remy, Bruce Campbell are in like every single thing that, uh, uh, Sam Raimi has done uh, so so you know they, they, they get brought up a lot in these uh, different things but anyways um, right. back to this movie um, Absolutely. <laughs> I, I was uh, the big thought I really kind of uh, took away from it is is like you know you guys kept bringing up punk but you know what kind of punk because like I think Alex Cox is a little bit more of the uh, um, uh, the the uh, oh what's his name uh richard hell kind of punk who who went to england um with the uh uh with the band johnny uh J johnny thunders and the uh heartbreakers uh which had um uh nancy spongen in tow and he was holding his clothes together with uh with you know like bobby pins because he was poor and he couldn't afford a new t-shirt so he just did that and then all the punks in england saw that and just started emulating it so uh is it is it the actual poverty like i think alex cox is a little more true punk 
like like that. that well, uh, honestly, the ironic part of it though is that Alex Cox, as someone who legitimately I think is that style of punk, had gone through UCLA, and at the time, like when punk was kind of uh, having its moment in the UK, he was going through UCLA and uh, making relationships with people that were kind of working on the early independent film scene, and then got Hollywood funding for pretty much all of his movies. Uh, when did he graduate? PMC. No, Dirty, dirty money. Dirty PMC. <laughs> no, so so he so he kind of had gone through that period, and then he had his big uh, three one one drain money. <laughs> he had his big four years where he ended up funneling all that money to the Sandinistas, and then getting blacklisted, which is the most punk thing I think you could possibly fucking do is just go to like Nicaragua, give a shitload of money to the Sandinistas, and then uh, then Hollywood's like, hey, we're never giving you money for anything ever again. But it's punk, so it's punk money. <laughs> but, but, but I so, think my point no, is, so is that uh, so there's that style of punk, and then there's the market-driven, like the, the Sex Pistols style of punk that uh, yeah, Alex Cox which is very vicious much... ripped off Richard yeah. Hell's look, and, yeah, and uh, the fact that you know Richard Hell couldn't play the bass guitar either because uh, he was like too messed up on whatever drugs uh, Nancy Spungen had. Yeah, no, so so it's interesting <laughs> these two these two movies put side by side. I would say that Sam Raimi is definitely the DIY model but also um you know a, a far more like you know the, the diy model is, is literally going around and, and you know funding your movie off people that you knock on their doors or whatever and then alex cox is kind of doing it with the apparatus of hollywood behind him at the time and is creating things that are far more punk and less market driven than anything um sam raimi ever did so it's an interesting dichotomy because the funding sources i think um in that case the funding sources are are vastly different but also um the art is incredibly different and, and the mindset behind it just just think if he was knocking on doors and talking about socialism we could have had medicare for all um, yeah <laughs> he could have he could have, he could have really just, alex cox why didn't you force the vote yeah well is he the one who had an apparatus behind him for the funding source or that's the yeah. other one no okay. is alex cox why didn't you force the vote <laughs> Nancy Pelosi, yeah. <laughs> she would have had to choose. We know which one she would have chosen, but she would have had to choose. And then for the reason of, I don't know, something. Anyway, we would have Medicare for all. <laughs> It was the monkeys that, that actually was uh, driving Alex Cox. Because it was uh, Michael Nesmith was the guy who, who uh, saw uh, something in Repo Man and yeah. produced it. So oh, well. that is a fun fact. Um, <laughs> yeah. no, he actually he actually saw somebody that he wanted to manage him at a bar and said the guy was like trying to show off for him to manage him or something. And he uh, he said, oh, I want to make this movie and I don't no one's funding it. And he literally grabbed the guy that had rejected Alex Cox's movie and said, why didn't you fund this movie? And the guy accepted it after that. And actually, the studio was incredibly angry that because it was someone that was well-known enough that those strings could get pulled, the movie had to get made because they had rejected the, the pitch for it. Right. So I'm not, I'm not saying that there's like, an, I'm not saying it's, it's organic in the sense of like, you know, he, he used some kind of privileged, uh, I guess, tactic to get his movie made. But I'm just saying it's interesting that the funding source, I think Andy froze, but <laughs> the, the funding source, <laughs> the, the funding source, they're interesting in both these cases because I think somebody was genuinely, um, trying to create like like radical art and had just accidentally kind of wandered into like they, the they were ones. trying to to get in touch with organic nature yeah an and organic why, you, you don't want to just have an apparatus you need to stay organic just got to be careful that the tree doesn't rape you i think 
Does it happen? Well, that, that, that is a concern. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, That's, from the that, movie. Was <laughs> that was market for it. That was market for it. Yeah, that is. Exactly you know what? You know what the uh, you know what the market says. The market says more trees need to penetrate, and if that doesn't happen, we can't get this movie made. But um, I guess I'm gonna cut it there for the night. Obviously, yeah, uh, Andy's gone. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> listen, without, listen with, to, without him, we oh, can't go. There's... We can't go on. We can't go on living. <laughs> on the show. Um, no, back. Listen, <laughs> listen to superstructure um thank you, if you us, thank you for having us on it was super yeah. fun so it was fun yes <laughs> it was a yeah. shit show but it was fun all right uh that's, what, that's what you wanted that's what you wanted yeah no that's that's what the market forces wanted exactly absolutely <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.